welcome to episode 43 of The Dive Down, Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike, Focus on latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Zach, here in Chicago. Join me from across town, it's the mirror breaker himself, Dave Harburger. I flash in a deceiver, XR, Edgar, and Step. Oh, that's it. Mm. I'm tapped out, Dave. Yes. Oh. Just how I like it. <laughs> also with us, the petty thief himself, Stan Islav. Yoink. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. Although, I don't know that a theft is a borrow, as that card might imply, but... Mm. It depends who you ask. I think it requires a little poetic justice, but who can say no to a cute little fairy? Fairies have very nice euphemisms for all the mean things that they do. So Shane is out for the next two weeks in scenic Barcelona. 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 We're going to kick this week's show off with a look at this weekend's modern challenge. Then we're going to dive into our patent bending, sleeve, believe, heave format for some new and improved decks featuring cards from Throne of Eldrain. And surprise, it seems this week the Siren Song of Combo has entranced and ensnared us all. Finally, we're going to wrap up with a heartwarming and Prince award-winning conversation about slumps. But first, some housekeeping. Prince is a young adult book where I looked up. I thought it was a funny joke. <laughs> so we have a few new patrons to shout out today. Big thanks and welcome to Judston B, Jacob N, Justin A, Alex B, and my friend Fletcher. Thanks, Fletch. Lots of J names this week. Yes, the meta is strong for the J. What do you think you bring in against a J? I mean, I'm bringing in Zs, but that's I got a 75 full of them. Mm, I like a Z. I, I like an O because you can kind of hook the J and kind of move it out of the way. Guys, I need to jump in really quick. I want to pull back the curtain for our listeners. Since I'm not doing housekeeping, I felt like I have to interrupt to really get this point across because I don't think our listeners know how hard we had to work on this episode for our Sleeve Believe Heave. We didn't just pick the names for these decks out of a hat. We were testing decks all week long. Mm -hmm. Personally, I tried like four different decks using new Eldraine cards, and all of that was entirely possible thanks to Manatraders.com. That's right. I think I tried three different builds of similar combo decks uh, over the last couple of weeks, as it turned out, and uh, they were all bad. Spoiler. <laughs> Not really. I have lots to say. But um, couldn't have done it without our friends at Manatraders.com. And uh, like we said a couple of times, they're helping us out on the show. And so if you like our show and want to give Manatraders a try, please go to Manatraders.com and sign up using the code THEDIVEDOWN to get 10% off your first three months. Yeah, and next time, before you spend your hard-earned money on a bad deck and paper, you can try it out online first, find out it's not for you, and spend your money wisely on Moxon. Which Moxon are you buying first right now? You know I'm all about Mox Sapphire and Mox Ruby. <laughs> not those ones. Those aren't in modern. I think they're gonna I think they're gonna get into modern eventually. <laughs> modern Horizons 2, Mox Boogaloo. Oh my god. Can't even imagine. So thank you, Stan, so much. So moving on to you again at the breakdown this week. What's going on? Coming at you live from the internet. I'm reporting on the weekend's modern challenge. And the headline this week, six Emery decks in the top 32. We'll get into those in a second. But first, let's look at the top eight. The winner of the weekend was Paradoxical Urza. Brand new deck, and it already feels pretty stock. I <laughs> thought the inclusion of one main deck jace the mind sculptor was interesting but otherwise you're seeing a lot of the usual fodder that we are come to expect from this new deck including sahili sublime artificer and psy master thopters as the main win conditions ursa to sort of help drive the combo along and produce a ton of mana and then a bunch of eggs that you pair with the paradoxical outcome to 
play a long grindy game and recast all your spells, draw your whole deck, and punish your opponent for ever sitting down across from you. In second place, we had Blue White Stoneblade running four Spell Queller with Teferi Time Cop, a very potent combo that I'm a fan of. And in third place, Titan Shift with the addition of two Castle Garen Brig in the main. Now already there. Yeah, it helps ramp out Primeval Titans a turn early. So there you go. In fourth place, Blue Moon with Thing in the Ice, another personal favorite of mine. In fifth place, what's that? Paradoxical Jeskai Ascendancy? The other new menace in the format? Yeah, it's kind of the other deck that we sort of intimated could be out there with Emery during the preview episode. So we didn't say anything about Paradoxical Outcome, but we did kind of mention that Ascendancy as a turn to kill is out there as possible for, uh, for Emery. So interesting to see Canister on it. Oh, totally. Sixth place, Mono Green Tron, very stock. In seventh place, we have Dredge in a pretty stock list with the addition of Merchant of the Veil, a new Eldrain card that's becoming basically the go-to choice for replacing Faithless Looting, Insolent Neonite, and even Tome Scour as a way to start getting your Dredge engine going. I think Insolent Neonate was not long for this world and very much sort of a glue of the moment that held the deck together while it looked for its new one drop to replace Faithless Looting. This card is just a little bit better, or I think a lot better. It's good on the instant side. It's instant speed too, which is very fun. And then the creature's ability, if you get to activate it any amount of times, pretty solid. You know, I didn't even notice that it was an instant. That's insane. Yeah, that's what's pretty amazing about that. And what makes me have a little bit of faith about that card popping up in other spots where Faithless used to be. Not to mention, similar to Faithless, it's it has the ability to get value later in the game too. It's quite a bit slower than Faithless Looting, yes, but similar in some regard. In eighth place, pretty typical Boros Burn. And then an honorable mention, ninth place, Mick Winsauce with blue-white control running two Fey of Wishes and a Knowledge Pool in the sideboard to create almost like its own Microsynth Lattice Lock using Teferi Time Reveler and Knowledge Pool. Knowledge Pool has long been a part of, I don't want to say janky, yeah, janky, kitchen table, homebrewed, modern decks where you can, you like, there existed locks before this with Knowledge Pool, but the little Teferi really just totally makes it the deal where you're done casting spells, it's my turn now. Yeah, let, let's explain what Knowledge Pool does really quickly. Knowledge Pool is a six mana artifact with imprint, which is an ability that reads when Knowledge Pool enters the battlefield, each player exiles the top three cards of his or her library. So far, so good. Sometimes exiling cards can be good. <laughs> For six mana. Oh, there's more text. This, this is probably important. Oh, wait. Whenever a player casts a spell from his or her hand... That player exiles it. If the player does, he or she may cast another non-land card exiled with Knowledge Pool without paying that card's mana cost. So why does that create a lock with Teferi? Because to cast any spell, the opponent has to do it at the same time as Knowledge Pool's ability is resolving, which is a time when you cannot cast sorceries. You can only cast sorceries when the stack is empty. That's right. So basically, the owner of Teferi can still cast spells, basically casting them from the Knowledge Pool Exile, but the opponent can't cast spells ever again. You can cast lands. Heck, you can activate your lands. Maybe you can make creatures. I don't know what you're up to over there. From the Knowledge Pool is my favorite Dream Theater album, for sure. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow. What a cut. 
Yeah, and Faye of Wishes is this new card from Eldraine, one in a blue for a 1-4 flying that's got an adventure sorcery called Granted. Three in a blue, you may choose a non-creature card you own from outside the game, reveal it, put it into your hand. And McQuinsauce actually did a little Q&A on Reddit immediately after the Modern Challenge and basically talked about how powerful Faye of Wishes was to just getting really strong sideboard cards early, you know, much the way Karn the Great Creator does as well as being a cheap body that can carry a sword. So pretty interesting. I think I'm actually going to try this deck out. I have a couple of things to say about this. One is um, it is interesting that this has a similar kind of weakness to being attacked by creatures. So keep that in mind that you have to kind of clear the board before you get it down so that your opponent can't hit your Teferi and end the lock. So it is, right. it is similar to the Mycosynth Great Creator lock, even like that, which is pretty cool. The other thing I would say really quick is... Go away, blue white control. This is not going to make me try to play you again right now. <laughs> you, you, you assume this ninth place finish is some sort of attempt to get you to play blue white control again? Not me personally, but this is definitely the type of thing that makes me go, hmm. But what if? And I thought it's so funny that Stan was just like, I'm definitely going to try this. And I'm like, I don't know. I've been burned so many times the last couple of months. I'm going to take a pass for a minute, I think. I believe Stan is showing us right now a sleeved version of the deck in a box you got it do you have a knowledge pool already did you have one i didn't but it was available for very cheap at my local game store so it is waiting for me to pick it up and that's amazing i think i might run out to the lgs tomorrow or this week grab it and play it on the spot well more power to you mcwin sauce is a very very well-known blue eye control player so i do believe anything that they do has legs just uh I'm going to avoid the Siren's Call this time. So this top eight had three combo decks, two Urza decks, and a Titan Shift. It had two control decks, blue-white and blue-red. And then it had a couple aggro decks in the form of Burn and Dredge, as well as Tron doing Tron things. When we zoom out, we do have the top 32. And when you zoom out, there are 11 combo decks in the top 32. And that includes Paradoxical Outcome decks, Sahili Combo with Felidar Guardian, and Titan Shift. I did a little bit of a breakdown of all the decks in Top 32 and sort of categorized them. And next to Combo, the second most popular category was Aggro Strategies. And there were six of those, and those were Burn, Infect, and Humans. I think you can call Humans an aggressive deck. There's also five mid-range decks. Jund, Grixis Shadow. Do you guys consider Grixis Shadow a mid-range deck, by the way? I, I would maybe want to flip Death Shadow and Humans for my list, but I, that might just be a personal preference. Yeah, I, I definitely see Grixis Death Shadow as a mid-range deck. It's a Thoughtseize deck, so I feel like that kind of moves it over there and you're grinding out value. Yeah, especially post-board when you're bringing in Liliana's. Also, Bant Company, I put that in the mid-range strategy just because it's really producing a ton of value with as many creatures as you can and kind of drawing out the game a little slower than something like humans or infect would. Only four big mana decks being Tron, Eldrazi Tron, and Amulet Titan. And I feel like Amulet Titan is something that's been on the rise lately. You don't consider Amulet Titan a combo deck in any way? Big mana combo? Maybe it's two sides of a similar coin? Like, you don't have to win with the combo, but grabbing Sunhome Fortress of the Legion and giving you know, other ways to give a double strike or haste feels like the way it's most likely winning. So I don't, it doesn't feel like a combo because you're winning via a creature attacking, which combo doesn't always do, but I don't know. I think it's a combo deck for what it's worth. Plays like one, looks like one. I mean, it's got other lines, but to me, it's it's all about figuring out how to get to that one specific payoff. 
Also, the top 32 had three dredge decks and three control decks. So let's wrap this up real quick. What are we really gleaning from the modern challenge this week? To me, it looks like there is a lot of paradoxical Emery showing up. Do y'all think this might be the new tier zero? I do. I most certainly do. I think this deck is just very, very good. I think that the other Urza deck is also very good still, and maybe this one just is a little more resilient. But I think Urza is just the new tier zero, and a lot of what Urza can do is very good. I don't, I'm not trying to make any bold claims or ask for anything right now or hint about any sort of tools that are used to, you know, put down nails into wood, anything like that. But I think the deck is very good and think that for the time being, Urza is our new overlord. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's interesting given the way that we ended up looking at decks that we wanted to test this week that there was such a combo heavy meta on this particular challenge. And I, I feel that that's kind of similar to what my experience has been online lately. So a little bit more on that later. Um, I do think that there's, it seems like at least for this moment, Urza is the deck that everybody wants to play. And so they're going for it. And let's, let's see if it sticks and becomes that uh, tent pole of the format or not. I mean, I gotta say, I've been playing a lot of different control and combo decks in the last couple weeks. And my record against Urza is pretty positive, which makes me think unlike something like KCI or Hogak, where you had to be really proactive in the way you hate it out. I think fair decks actually stand a decent chance against Urza as long as they line up their answers at a decent time and can can point their disruption in the right directions. I think we're going to have a lot to say about Urza in the next couple of weeks and also in later segments right now. So we'll call that a tease and uh, a tease for this episode and a tease for later episodes as well. A tease for now and a tease for later. A tease to take home with you. Double tease. Also, barely any burn in the top 32 there's the 8th place deck and then Mono Red Prowess in 21st. Personally, I feel like this is kind of what happens when we, the deck being hated out of the format. And I wonder if this is us seeing that effect in practice. I totally see where you're coming from with that, especially because if this is a huge event, right? Like this is a seven round long, super intense event. And you don't want to bring a deck that you think isn't going to win at all. So if you think there's a chance that people have a burn ready sideboard, bring something that they either you think is resilient enough to sideboard hate or people won't have options for yeah i think that that it's interesting that uh goldfish's meta tracker says that burn is still the biggest deck Mm -hmm. in in modern right now and i feel like that's not totally true anymore i feel like it's lagging behind a little bit it's definitely not 16 percent of what i've seen online lately um and i think that this is just the rebound right and i i wonder a little bit if burn i haven't played much burn lately so i haven't seen burn versus urza for example but i feel like burn might really struggle with a deck that puts so many um permanents on the board so quickly and also uh i pretty much doesn't have a way to kill urza unless it sides in path to exile so i think there's probably a little bit of bumping up against another juggernaut in the format there too for what it's worth, there was a ton of burn in the modern classic at SCG Philly. So interesting. maybe all those players were just in Pennsylvania this weekend. <laughs> in person in Philly. Yeah, I mean, all the Urzas were, had made day two of SCG of the SCG Open. So, uh, you know. Top it all off, we got Uncle Watch 2019, baby. Stuck with the last three decks, Bant Company, Infect, Four Colors Sahili. Yeah, Oko and Infect as a way to grind out value. Make some elks out of problematic permanence. Gain some extra life in the process. Yes, you can make my ensnaring bridge into an elk. And then it's no longer a bridge. It's an elk. Tails all this time. Yeah, I mean, Oko is just popping up all over the place. So I, I think that Oko Watch is going to... What What do we do when the watch becomes like 
our reality? Does it just was it just Oko Watch Infinity or what's going on? Well, that's actually the teaser for season two, so I don't want to give away too much. But when the watch becomes reality, is going to be on a lot of promo material. See, I just wrote the copy for you. You can money, please. I just thought we were going to be autographing foil Okos for all of our patrons, but maybe that's the other podcast. Ooh, foil full art collector's edition scrapbook version feature art Okos. So while I was helming the news desk for this week, I wanted to take a minute to see how we can frame the modern challenge as lessons for casual spikes. Because if I'm someone who's really only playing in the LGS, like what can I really learn from what these MTGO grinders are doing week over week? One of the first things that came to mind is if you're curious about the latest innovations in Urza or which combo decks are strongest in the current format, I feel like a lot of that is on display here. And probably the one combo deck that I thought was absent from the Modern Challenge was Emrakul Through the Breach and Storm. Otherwise, a lot of it was, you know, being played and doing pretty well in the top 32. Agree with that. 100% cosine. Likewise, even though there's no Jeskai in the top 32, Stoneforge Mystic consistently keeps demonstrating that its best friend is Teferi Time Raveler. And personally, I really hate playing Teferi without Spell Queller. The McQuinn Sauce Fae of Wishes deck, I think, looks really appealing and maybe can provide a whole other avenue to exploit Teferi's really powerful static abilities and his plus ability. Absolutely. And I feel like something that the challenge is particularly good for in a way that's different than 5-0s is it's always fun, you know, to see the latest tech or how people are building things. But 5-0, someone can get lucky sometimes, right? You can run into a bunch of the same matchup a couple times. You can get really lucky and have an opponent disconnect, which would be unfortunate, but would be a win. Things like that. It's hard to know how that person's 5-0 went without video. But we know for the challenge, that person did very well against other people who are absolutely trying their hardest intentionally there's a much lower chance that someone got very lucky and got their way to a, a high win like this. So it's a good chance to see what a very high-level player trying to build for a very aggressive, intense meta is going to bring into their deck. And like Stan's saying, you, you can be on sort of the cutting edge or see new tech as it's being developed. I think this is one of those things where like the 5-0s are your sketchbook and the the um, challenge is sort of the first level of refinement. And so you'll see the latest innovations in the challenge. You'll also see things get wildly overrepresented really quickly online versus paper. I think quite often that happens and you'll see it in challenges. You know, I'm not sure if we're really looking at a metagame where 16% of what's essentially the day two meta is Emery. You know what I mean? Which is when you say there's six out of 32, that's not exact math, but it's it's in that ballpark. Um, the, so I think that that's kind of like trends that you can see, but they get writ large and they move very fast. So I think you have to sort of take them with a grain of salt, but also like, if you want to see the first rumblings of new stuff, this is the place to look. Yeah. Something I heard on the last episode of Faithless Brewing that I found really fascinating was their observation that the modern challenge meta cycles basically every week. And we're often seeing the successful decks in one week being a response to the previous so I think if Urza is something you're struggling with or Combo is something you're struggling with, this upcoming modern challenge that comes out like a couple of days after this podcast drops might be some of your earliest indicators on how you can compete with those strategies as well. Yeah, part of that is because a lot of the players uh, week over week are are similar people, right? I mean, mm-hmm. McWin Sauce is in the challenge quite often and Canister is in there quite often and Gabe Nassif, you know, Bob the Dog. Sodek. Is he Bob the Dog? Yep. 
is that his screen name? Yeah, Bob the Dog is on it all the time too. And Sodak, like Zach just said, is quite often on it. So there's there's these kind of like challenge grinders that are there. It's a lot. It's a lot of time to set aside on a Saturday to play in the modern oh, it's challenge. It's a whole Saturday. So if you're going to do well at it, I could see how these people end up having it just be part of their routine. And so you do get to see their kind of like little meta amongst each other as well quite often. Yeah. So the last takeaway that I had from this modern challenge was for burn players. And this can be an illustration of all the ways people are sideboarding against burn. And, you know, my position is that this might be what it looks like when a deck starts to get hated out. So also the dredge players of which there were three in the top 32 all ran nearly identical main decks, all of them opting for the new Eldrain card merchant avail as their one mana discard outlet. So as we sort of mentioned, it doesn't impression of faithless looting because you can cast the creature side later on to serve as a discard enabler later it's quite slow, right? It's quite a bit slower than Faithless Looting is, and it's not packing as big of a punch. You're not discarding two, you're not drawing two. But speed aside, I can't help but wonder if this might be something Arclay Phoenix players could look at too, because if it passes the dredge test, shouldn't it be worth testing in Phoenix as well? It's being played there in standard. I mean, we're not that kind of podcast. I don't I do not do that most <laughs> times, but I've been having some fun on Arena play any card, play any deck, run a little bit of Blue Red Phoenix there. And this is real good in there. I'm shocked that Zach would even let a Phoenix anywhere near to any deck that he was playing. Well, it's not not paper. I'm okay with the digital bird, if you know what I'm saying. I understand. Flip this digital bird. Hey, before we get out of this segment, I did want to take a minute to, to give a shout out to Faithless Brewing, who you talked about a couple minutes ago, um, and Dan on, on that podcast. Actually, we had a nice kind of dialogue on Reddit about uh, the Dive Down spoiler episode from Eldraine a couple of episodes ago when uh, Emma was on. Just a little bit of a chat about the way that he and his crew kind of approach looking at cards that might make it from a new set in modern versus kind of the way that we look at it. And it was a really cool discussion, I think, as far as just kind of not the philosophies of the two different podcasts, but maybe the goals of our podcast versus somebody else who's doing something different. And, you know, at Faithless Brewing, they really are looking at how to create the best case scenarios for cards to succeed. And I think our philosophy is a little bit more kind of holding things up to where could they fit in decks that already exist. And so if you want to see a slightly different perspective on cards from Eldraine and where they could go, I would definitely recommend Dan and the team at Faithless Brewing. Yeah, they basically invented the five-color Niv-Mizzet deck. And Cave Dan is a brewer who has a lot of respect and uh, has earned a really positive reputation in the magic community. So I, I agree. Faithless Brewing, top-tier modern podcasts. Yep. We're all one big family over here. Thank you so much, Dan and Dave. I think now we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about how we're either sleeving, believing, or heaving some fun new combo decks. Stay with us. So this week, we did something a little different from past Sleeve Believe Heave episodes. That's right. Zach is hosting. <laughs> For one. There's a few changes this week. So where we typically look at recent tournament results and 5-0 dumps and choose a deck from there, this week we've done that but not played that deck itself. We've done a little bit of brewing, tweaking, having some fun. And we have three sort of overall deck, not archetypes, but loose 75. That, although inspired by things we've seen in list, friends we've talked to, and for me, goblins that have visited me in my sleep, they are distinct from the published list that we saw in the dumps. 
So one thing that we sort of talked about up top, and that's really not weird, maybe eerie, a little too much coincidental, is that without discussing it beforehand, both Dave, Stan, and myself all chose decks that were combo decks. Yeah, it's super strange, I think, right? Like, not, not, I don't think all of us are combo players generally. I mean, I've infrequently heard Zach talk about it. I know Stan and I have both sent some, spent some time in the, the trenches of Storm and trying to do some other things. But um, I thought it was an interesting coincidence. And so I wanted to talk a little bit before we hop into the, the actual decks that we chose to, to talk about why we maybe chose the things that we did. And so when we started talking with each other, I thought it was pretty interesting that there was the coincidences that came up were basically one, none of us wanted to play Emery Urza for this podcast, for this episode of the podcast, because I think we already believed that it was a new deck and we didn't really need to spend time deciding whether we were going to sleeve believe or heave that. This might be a good opportunity to say we're actually going to talk about that deck soon. Not not on this episode, but soon. Stan, I think you just teased it episode to be named later yeah i think it's gonna be soon on the timeline of the next one to two episodes everybody so um we'll keep an eye on that well, you know when the truck comes in it's usually on fridays so if you get here early enough you can get the stock before it's actually put on the shelf perfect <laughs> oh it's oh it's, it's here early everybody uh the other thing that we noticed was that when we were looking at the past at this kind of new sets deck dumps Compared to the past couple of sets deck dumps, there really wasn't that many examples of totally new decks outside of the Emery Paradoxical Outcome list in the 5-0 dumps. What there was was a lot of Eldraine cards that were showing up in decks that people were either trying to rehabilitate a little bit or add to or kind of expand on. It didn't seem like there was any new concept. For example, there wasn't really like, hey, we're trying Knight's Tribal right now. Like There wasn't any of those. There wasn't anything that was like, adventure heavy or something like that you don't think my soon to be named combo deck is a new deck or a new concept i don't think so i think it's a large the largest leap forward out of the decks that we have to look at of a deck that was already starting to be tweaked around with a little bit personally sure okay uh, and then as it turned out like zach said all three of us had chosen some kind of combo deck as something that had um intrigued us at this moment so what we're going to do on this episode we're going to talk about each one of us is going to talk about a combo deck or a family of combo decks that we tried and then after that we're going to take a minute and talk about a couple of elder eldrin cards that have showed up that maybe we slept on a little bit in the spoiler episode if we have time but the question that i had really after realizing that we were all on combo decks was kind of if we're all if we were all interested in combo decks why now why did it feel like something that made sense for us to look at in modern right at this moment? So I did not approach this from some sort of metatextual reading of the meta. I am playing, spoiler alert, combo goblins, goblins for this episode. And it was more that I really liked the 5-0 list I played a while ago. And this is the ability to run what seemed like a better version of that 5-0 list. So I think it ended up being good. And I definitely have some thoughts about why I thought it ended up being good. Spoiler alert. But I think overall, I didn't approach this as a way to hack the meta, but the meta hacked me. <laughs> I love it. Something spoke to you and you just went with it. I think that's great. My inner goblin screeched. Stan, did you have any thoughts on why you started being interested in combo right now? Well, winning on the spot is nice. Backing up an instant win condition with a powerful controller tempo package is a great way to buy time. And 
the deck I chose was really a marriage of some of the strategies I've been looking at recently, looking at the evolution of blue-red decks that I've been focused on in MTGO and the meta at large, and seeing how a new card or two was actually innovating a deck that I've had my eye on for a while. So my spoiler alert was blue-red Emrakul through the breach. So I'm going to talk about basically how the new cards are impacting that strategy and when or where you might want to play that over other Blue Moon strategies overall. And for me, I think the reason that I ended up looking at combo decks is that I I have been looking for a combo, a new combo deck to play the last couple of weeks, all within the context of Urza, and then specifically in the last 10 days or so within the context of the paradoxical outcome Urza deck. And so, like we talked about earlier, it's starting to feel like the Urza decks are the tier one or maybe the tier 0.5 or tier, you know, wherever you want to go with that. And in my mind, I, I don't know if I feel like fair decks are having a hard time right now, but it feels like you want to be in a situation where you could break through something that Urza does, like laying out 30 servo tokens or something like that really quickly. And so making sure that you have kind of an escape hatch for something like that felt pretty important. And that led me to combo. Dave, I totally agree with what you're saying. And just to really quickly piggyback off that, I think the reason that fair deck struggles in a meta like this right now is because of how wide open I feel like it is. There are so many different decks and so many different options and fair decks. And once again, I'm thinking of Scred here. You only have so many answers and you have to tailor them. So you can't have answers for everything. You can try like cards like a braid are good, etc. But you're going to get blown out by something you didn't prepare for because there's so many viable decks. So instead, you can do something that doesn't care about what your opponent's doing. Combo, right? Whatever your opponent's doing is irrelevant because you're trying to win quickly. Yeah, I totally agree. And I also think that in the case of seeing a certain amount of portion that's going to be Urza in this, you know, I wanted to look at that and be like, you know, it doesn't feel to me like Urza is a deck that is, you know, as weird as it sounds for the number of permanents it puts on the board really quickly, it doesn't feel like it's a deck that's particularly fast. And also, it, it goes wide, but, you know, the paradoxical deck doesn't have the hate package that the Wurza decks have. And as Wurza gets a little bit less kind of prevalent, you know, it's more of a controlly version. And paradoxical outcome is out there and it's more of a, hey, I'm going to draw a bunch of cards and flood the board and try to attack. You know, there's this kind of like window where you can, if you can execute a plan with a really small package really quickly mm-hmm. against a deck that doesn't really have a ton of disruption because the, the paradoxical outcome decks really only have a little bit of disruption and maybe a four of uh, fatal push in the sideboard or galv blast in the sideboard, something like that. You get a chance maybe to a maybe a spell bomb. Uh, spell bomb. There is some, they have four engineered explosives, which can do some stuff, but there's ways to play around that as well. So I felt like there's a little bit of an opening that if you can kind of combo faster than them, it might be a good kind of deck to prey on in the metagame. And so, you know, that was my hypothesis. Now, the question is whether it led me to a good conclusion, because um, in this metagame of Urza plus big mana decks like Amulet Titan and stuff like that that's out there, I felt like what I wanted to do was kind of mess around and go back to an old classic, which is Kiki-Jiki, and see there's a lot of 5-0 decks that have been showing up in the Kiki-Jiki family lately, and so I wanted to do a sort of evaluation of all of those. And so that's the uh, the family of deck that I decided to look at this week. Deep from the Disney vault, it's Kiki-Jiki. Yeah. 50th year anniversary. Titanium box release. <laughs> I do want to jump in really quickly to say that I don't actually think fair decks are struggling that much because we're still seeing a ton of mid-range aggro and control all over. And in my mind, 
even though there is a ton of combo going on and it does seem like combo is at an all-time premium i think part of that has to do with the fact that burn has been hated out so we don't have these super fast aggressive decks pressuring the life of the slower grindier combo decks so they have more time just to find the cards they need to close out the game but in terms of fair strategies i think goif and batter skull are still and even and death shadow for that matter are still really strong potent threats that are perfectly viable and fairly decent against combo strategies too but that being said let's jump into our first combo deck zach you're a little goblin what was it like playing with other little goblins i've said a few times this episode this week i played a combo deck which is off the wall for me so i ran two lists overall one was a Olin combo, and that was a straight lift from the MTGO user, Marceloska, who got a 5 with this list. So, hey, thank you so much for being the one to finally have it coalesce and get the 5-0. And then I also ran a toolbox deck list that was me looking at lists before the 5-0 dump came out and looking at all the lists people had posted on Deckbox and, you know, tapped out and MTG and looking at them and seeing what I liked and what I wanted and also looking at the older black red vial list that had existed and seeing what I wanted to get from there. So this uh, deck is hearkening back to the conversation I had with Emma a few episodes on our preview episode with Grumgully, where she'd mentioned there's infinite combo, where if you have murderous red cap, you can do an infinite damage loop with some other cards. So I'm not going to say it like that. I'm going to explain it to you. So what is this combo? How does it work? Why is it all goblins? So first, in part and part, you need a free sec outlet. So Goblins is lucky that it has two free sec outlets. The only requirement is that the creature sacrificed be a goblin. First, we have Skirk Prospector, a single red mana for a 1-1 with the text, Sacrifice a Goblin, add a red mana to your mana pool. So that is a good way to get the combo going. Comes down early, can add mana. And then the other sec outlet is Seeing Gain Lieutenant. Three and a single black for a 1-1. When it enters the battlefield, you create two 1-1 red goblin tokens. And then also has, importantly... Sack a goblin. Your opponent loses one life and you gain one life. So both these are outlets that don't require mana, can use instant speed to sacrifice goblins. So the creature you're sacrificing is often murderous red cap. Two and two red black hybrid mana, so four mana total, for a two-two. When it enters the battlefield, it deals damage equal to its power to any target. Also has persist, which reads Whenever this permanent is put into a graveyard from the battlefield, if it had no minus one minus one counters on it, return to the battlefield under owner's control with a minus one minus one counter on it. What you do is you have out murderous red cap and you sack it to one of these outlets and it comes back. But you only do it twice, right? So it dies, comes back with a minus one minus one counter, then deals one damage. Then you do it again and it's dead. That's not infinite. That's just twice. That's way less than infinite. That's twice finite. That's very finite. But what makes this go infinite is the card that I mentioned in episode 41, Grumgully the Generous shuts out Grummy G. So what Grumgully does is it has this really important text that each other non-human creature you controls enters the battlefield with an additional plus one plus one counter on it. So when Redcap leaves the battlefield, if it didn't have a minus one minus one counter on it, you return to the battlefield with one. And it triggers. But then Grumgully is also causing it to enter with a plus one plus one counter. And in Magic, the rules say that if a creature has both a plus one plus one counter and a minus one minus one counter, they cancel each other out. So after you sack Murderous Redcap, it leaves, comes back, and then has no counters and deals two damage. So as long as they don't have a way to kill your sack outlet or have a way to stop you from trying to go off, you can just keep sacrificing Murderous Redcap over and over and over again, and it'll deal two damage on each ETB. 
So you do that 10 or 15 times, you can just kill an opponent, wipe a board, do whatever you need to do. So that's the combo. It is a little hard to assemble and kind of easy to disrupt sometimes just because all your important pieces are creatures and they can't be played at instant speed without Aether Vial, which I'll get into in a second. But there is some um, redundant pieces. There's some other ways to grind the opponent out and have some other value. The deck does have four tutors with Goblin Matron. So you aren't always able to assemble the exact combo, but you can still look for other pieces or helpful things. So in these scenarios, Pashalik Mons from Modern Horizons is very helpful. So Pashalik Mons, whenever uh, it or another goblin you control dies, it deals one damage to any target. Then it has the activated ability, three in a red, sacrifice a goblin, create two one one red goblin creature tokens. So that can provide you some value. You know, you can make some key blocks here and there, sacrifice a goblin, get more goblins, start dealing damage to planeswalkers even. So not ideal, but a grindy mid-range plan if your combo gets disrupted, not the end of the world. Also, there's this fun little trick where you have infinite mana with Putrid Goblin or with uh, Murderous Redcap as well, but usually you're just winning with the damage there. Because if you continually sack it to Prospector, you get one red mana. So Putrid Goblin is just a 2-2 with Persist. So if you keep sacking that to uh, Skirk Prospector, you get one red mana each time. And then you can make four and activate Pashalik Mons and sacrifice a goblin token. Make two. Keep sacking the Persist Goblin. You can, you know, can make 20, 24, 28 mana, etc. Sacrifice five goblins, deal five damage, so on and so forth. It's really grindy, but a slow way to win the game. I, I've played against this deck a bunch of times now. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, I guess a bunch would be three <laughs> times I've played against a deck like this. And it's surprisingly good i think the the combinations and the different combos that you can assemble out of it i think are super interesting because there's all these different pieces that are indicators of good combos right like zach said there's manaless sack outlets that's always a big indicator that you can do some combo stuff on it there's a creature that has a return to the battlefield um condition on it in persist that has a, a comes into play effect that's another big indicator so i think there you know there's all these different plans that you can do and you can kind of make this web out of it that really turns into a great grindy or even aggressive plan if you get the right draw and are in the right situation exactly yeah i was likewise really impressed i actually got to play a couple of games against zach and he was able to basically execute both combos in the same match but in different games and both times he just started doing this thing and then i had to chime into the chat like wait do you actually win right now and rather than forcing my opponent, who's also my co-host, to do a million clicks, I conceded. But it was one of those really sneaky combos that just kind of comes out of nowhere because I wasn't aware how it worked. I wasn't directing all of my removal at the most important pieces, and then I got punished for it. Yeah, absolutely. So it is worth noting that although it is a combo and does take a lot of clicking on MTGO, I think it is not as much as other combo decks. So you know, even though Stan went, oh, I think I just lose here, and I'll forfeit or i'll quit the match or whatever it is um there are times when your opponent makes you have it and with this one luckily you deal two damage on each on each enter the battlefield trigger so you only have to take 10 tops and sometimes your opponent can gain a lot of life and that can get a little much but it is much less clicking than other combo decks and that was something i really liked about it it was that usually when i had it it didn't take long for me to just do it yeah and like stan said the combo can really come out of nowhere sometimes especially if your opponent doesn't respect grum gully like it's really, in my opinion, not wise to run that card out unless you are going to win right away and have to play it beforehand or are going to win the same turn because it dying is very bad and it is the centerpiece of the combos. And also really just give us stuff like Pash like Mons anyway, where the tokens he's making are 2-2 two, two goblins instead of 1-1. One, one. And also like 
both of them mentioned, the deck can really easily pivot into this other plan should the combo get disrupted. So I like a deck that has a good plan B. Yeah, and not to mention, you have cards that let you search for the right answers for what scenario you're in. So you can run four Goblin Matron, which searches up a specific Goblin, and you can run Ringleader, which searches up um, you know, whatever number of Goblins you get out of the top cards off of your deck. So you can do this kind of like digging card advantage, card selection thing that seems pretty out of character, but actually works pretty well in the, in the deck. I've lived the dream of my opponent's end step violating in a Ringleader, and it grabs all three combo pieces. And you just go, oh, this is easy. Magic is easy. And they were tapped out at the same time, too, of course. And there you go. So, like I said, I thought the deck was very fun. thought it was grindy. I thought it could be very fast when it needed to be. Yeah, I was going to say one last piece that fits into this picture, too, is Munitions Expert. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, that is, unfortunately, the only instant speed card in the deck, aside from Aethervile shenanigans, but every other card in the deck has to be cast at sorcery speed. I just have had giant creatures die to Munition Expert a bunch of times, you know, where I'm like, yeah, I have a... I think I had, in one of the games, I had a uh, Restoration Angel with a Batter Skull and a sword on it that I was playing, so it was like a 10 toughness creature and they were just like matron up a munitions expert kill it and i was like oh great my huge like life linking beater it's over yeah i think it's really added a lot of decision trees to the deck and made things a little more complicated there's been a few times where i was the goblins player looking at that creature and went okay i can only deal eight damage right now what do i have to do oh wait okay hold on attack first and then sacrifice a goblin to Pashlik. you're gonna get two more then deal the one damage to the angel and there we got it yeah like Goblins before did not have lines like that. That wasn't how you played the deck. So it's just fun to see that, you know, a sort of stereotypical or in common trope, a very dumb, dim-witted creature has this really big brain deck. <laughs> Galaxy Goblins is what we should call this. <laughs> but, but what I didn't like about the deck in the end was I felt very reliant on Vile. Like, I feel like games where I did not have Vile, I was at a very significant disadvantage, and any sort of hand disruption or removal really messed it up. Um, the 5-0 list I mentioned was very heavy on playsets of cards. I personally like the more toolbox-style deck. I feel like that one's a little less reliant on Vile, and it's more reliant on you knowing your opponent's deck and trying to look for what can help you best. That being said, I don't think one's inherently better than the other. I think that you can play either version, and depends on what you want to do. But I enjoy things like Goblin Chieftain and Crater Maker and Pile Driver as just utility goblins. So in the end, I'm a firm sleeve on this. I think the deck probably has even more room to grow, and people can try out more goblins in the sideboard and different ideas. Overall, I think the sideboard was the weakest part for me, and it felt very much like, hey, we figured out the 60 combo. Oh, crap. You, there are games two and three. Mm. What do we do for those? So I feel like there's still a ton of room for it to evolve. I feel like we've just seen its initial form, and I'm excited for the future of this deck. Also, little side thought. Stan and Dave have both mentioned this sort of fabled aristocrats deck in modern. I think this is it. I think this is the aristocrats deck, but not wearing a cloak of a nobleman, but the mud of a goblin. I mean, like I said, I played against this deck a number of times and I, I think it's really good. And I think if you like like wacky kind of creature combos, this one actually has some legs to it and has a whole bunch of power to be able to craft different lines. And so you know, hearing you say it's a sleeve is pretty awesome. So I think people should check it out if they if they like this kind of thing at all. Yeah, absolutely. And just to reiterate, this is a really real deck. This isn't some someone's jinky combo brew. This isn't something that someone dreamed up in a lab. This feels very real and powerful. And I felt like I was doing real powerful 
comp REL things when I was playing this deck. Yeah, at one point, Zach chimed into our chat and said, this is the best deck he's ever played. And I mean that. You were excited, as excited as a, as a school kid when you were playing it, and we were watching along in the text chat. So do you think this is a deck that exploits the combo meta we're in now? Or is this something that might make 8-whack players put their goblin deck aside because it's just strictly better? I think that it's a different goblin deck, and it, it is a lot more expensive. You do need Cavern of Souls and other you know pretty staple magic cards, Aether Vial as well. Um, I definitely think that if you... I think it's a better deck than 8-whack. I'll come out and say that. But I think if you like the play, play style of 8-whack, this isn't an exact replacement for that. Like If you want the go-fast goblins, dump your hand, this isn't that deck. But I think if you want to play the most competitive Goblin deck you can, I do think it is this deck. I'd say that this deck looks a lot more to me like the deck that I tested in some ways, which was Kiki, what variants of Kiki Pod, basically. It feels, especially the toolbox version that you designed, feels like kind of a cousin to that. Absolutely. I, w- I want to get in one more point, too, about responding to Stan's question about I think it's really good and resilient. So this should be because, at least for Skirk Prospector, you can't shut that ability off with a needle or spyglass because it's a mana ability you can't shut down the sack outlet if it is sling gang because that's not a mana ability but the combos you know like i said the creature disruption at the right moment can just shut you out of the water but it is harder to disrupt than people might give it credit for and i've you know i've seen some things let me tell you and this deck is good (laughs) that's awesome strong sleeve from zach there dave you are playing a powerful goblin as well i don't think Zach should get all the credit for being the goblin master on the podcast. That's true. <laughs> I totally forgot that my friend is a, is a Dave goblin. Dave was honored with friend friend of goblins. So I would like to welcome you all to Dave's Adventures in Mirror Breaking. So like we talked about earlier, um, I've been thinking about combo a little bit lately in general, even before we got to this episode and had the random occurrence of, of adding, having us all pick combo decks. Um, one thing is that that people may not know about me or that I've mentioned occasionally, but not all the time, is that I used to be a twin player back right around the time that twin was, was uh, Stan just gave me such a shocked look on the webcam. Dave, a blue red twin uh, player? What? I know, right? I actually, you know, I, lo- I loved to play twin. I wasn't playing a lot of tournaments at that point in time, but I was playing with friends, which is like the worst thing you can do is play casually, play a combo deck. Um, I like to play the blue red twin. I like to play Grixis twin a lot, which was like a le- somewhat lesser known variant. Um, so I always love the combination of control and combo that that blue red has. Um, the thing that has always been the most interesting to me about this is that it has a chance to play its kill condition basically at, at instant speed, right? And so in what I was talking about earlier, where um, you know, being able to watch Urza do a whole bunch of stuff, put a whole a whole board out and then flash in a deceiver Exarch and then drop Kiki on the next turn and just go off. That kind of play pattern seemed pretty attractive to me in the context of what was going on right now. Um, I got super interested again in trying out Kihijiki decks when I saw a really uh, sweet teamer Kihijiki list in the five O's about three weeks ago. Um, It first was played. It looks like at GP Ghent by Luis Bichaud and Arnaud Joachim. Um, I noticed it also when two pilots on MTGO played it, Toast XP and Zaros. And here's the thing is that this deck was basically Kikijiki, blue, red, kind of blue moon, plus Renin Six. So it was basically like swapping out blue the Blood Moons actually as a sort of 
win con for Renin 6 as a value engine and also its own kind of alternate win path. Um, I think before I go too much deeper, I kind of want to take a minute to talk about what Kiki Jiki does and why it is such a notable combo card in modern. It's kind of like one of those bedrock things that people come back to over and over again. So basically, it's been a while since it's been good, but I think it's a good idea to read, talk about how the infinite combo works. So Kiki Jiki, Mirror Breaker, is a two generic red, red, red legendary goblin shaman. It's a 2-2. The card text says, haste, tap, create a token that's a copy of target non-legendary creature you control, except it has haste, sacrifice it at the beginning of the next end step. So, hey, guess what? That's the card text from, from Splinter Twin essentially. And so back when that was in modern as well, the deck was ba- was based around having a full complement of splinter twins and having a couple of Kiki Jikis there to supplement your splinter twin package. So that kind of like redundant eight pack effect. These days you're only stuck really being able to run Kiki Jiki in some quantity to be able to make it do it. So the deal is that you play Kiki Jiki in decks with cards that can untap it. Generally, the first two cards that people think about are classically the cards that go with it are Pestermite, which is a 2-1 Flash Flyer for two generic and a blue mana that taps or untaps permanent, and Deceiver Exarch, which is a 1-4 Flash for two and a blue that taps a permanent opponent's your opponent controls or untaps something you control. So the idea with those cards is you kind of wait for a good opportunity at the end of your opponent's turn, flash in one of those two, go to your turn, drop Kiki Jiki, make infinite tokens by... Um, copying Pestermite or Deceiver Exarch, and then untapping your Kiki-Jiki when the new token comes into play. You do that until you have a gazillion tokens and then attack. I enjoy the fun spin on Control, where Control holds up counter magic, and then if you don't do anything, they draw some cards. This one, if you don't do anything, they play an infinite combo. Yes. That's pretty much a way that most of the Kiki-Jiki and Splinter Twin decks work depending on what flavor they were. Remember, right around the time that Splinter Twin got banned, there were tons of different variants. There was Teamer Twin, and there was like straight blue-red, and there was Grixis, and there were all these different kind of spins on the deck that were going on at the same time. And um, But that was sort of what the play pattern was. So I played a little bit of blue-red Kiki once upon a time, and I think we can't really understate how important the flash ability is. Um not only because you're able to bring in an instant speed, but also these flash creatures are able to tap down a perm opponent's permanence or untap your own lands. So when this new Throne of Eldraine card called Corridor Monitor came out, which is a two drop, and when it ETBs, it untaps an artifact or creature you control. At first, I thought that might have, you know, the legs, like these tiny little robot artifact legs, to, you know, maybe couple with Kiki. But the lack of flash, as well as the lack of interacting with the opponent's board, I just think it gets outclassed by the creatures you're usually running. So it does, and and I I do have a little bit more to talk about that, because one of the decks that I played actually ran Corridor Monitor as, it un, as its untapping card, which is pretty cool. There's a certain... There's sort of a big asterisk that goes next to that. But it is worth mentioning that there are several other cards that work with this. Corridor Monitor is one of them. Restoration Angel is actually sort of the mega version of this where you can untap uh, Kiki Jiki over and over again with Restoration Angel and make infinite angels. There's Village Bell Ringer, which is a white version. So occasionally you see these like weird Boros Kiki Jiki decks with Resto and Village Bell Ringer instead. So there's a lot of cards to kind of work in this package there. The thing is... So I started with this Teamer deck that 
jammed Renin 6 into the blue-red kind of package. And I thought it was really fun for a little bit, but I also found it to be a little bit clunky. I think that the best thing that that uh, it turned out that Renin 6 did for that deck was make it so that you could always be sure you were going to get to three red mana to be able to play Kiki Jikis because you could just keep playing your fetch lands over and over again. Totally helpful. Sometimes you get to ultimate Kiki, uh, you get to ultimate Kiki Jiki. No, you get to ultimate Renin 6 and lightning bolt someone to death, basically, which which kind of helps as well as an alter win plan. So I, I played with a little bit. I thought it was fun, and then I set it aside and started going back to some other stuff. But then we started to put this episode together, and I wanted to pick out what to test. I noticed one thing that was super interesting, which was on our spoiler app, I had asked about whether Once Upon a Time could be run, what types of decks Once Upon a Time was going to be run in. And so when we were looking at decks to pick for this episode, I was kind of keeping an eye out for non-tron non-titan decks that had once upon a time in them and in the first 5-0 deck dump there were actually two deck lists that started sort of like this three once upon a time x copies of kiki jiki and i went oh, could it be he's back the scrolls they foretold the scrolls exactly so you know the first deck that i looked at actually was four once upon a time four prime speaker vanifar two kiki jiki and i got really excited there because i had had high hopes for once upon a time i had at one time really had high hopes for prime speaker vanifar i had even gotten a 5-0 in the past with a prime speaker vanifar deck at one point in time i was also trying Humble to see break. if kiki jiki could work at the same time and so i was kind of like hey this is the place where i need to start so if you don't know what Prime Speaker Vanifar does, I'm going to read it really quick. It's two generic, a blue, and a green. It's a 2-4 legendary creature, Elfu's Wizard, which is the best creature line ever. Um, and the card text is, tap, sacrifice another creature, search your library for a creature card with a converted mana cost equal to one plus a sacrifice creature to convert a converted mana cost. Put that card in the battlefield, then shuffle your library, activate this ability only time you would cast a sorcery. So basically... It's Birthing Pod, right? It's basically the functional replacement for Birthing Pod, right? Another kind of super broken band card. And so now the stars are starting to line up and I'm like, hey, we have this creature combo deck that's looking to use Once Upon a Time to help find the win conditions that it needs. And it felt like just the right thing to kind of test out. It was in the first deck dump. And so that's what I, that's how I ended up trying this, this deck out. The thing to keep in mind is that Vanifar Pod plays much more like Kiki Chord then it plays like a blue-red control deck with Kiki Jiki in it. So it's much more like that toolbox deck that Zach was just kind of describing earlier with uh, in the Goblin build that he had gotten to. So it's a toolbox deck. It's got 33 creatures in it, and everything has a relevant end of the battlefield effect. There's n hardly any spells in it. There's just Once Upon a Time and Court of Calling, and the deck that I played had a single copy of Red and Six in it. The general idea is you get Prime Speaker Vanifar into play, and sacrifice your way up a chain that ends with both Kiki Jiki and one of your untapped targets in play. There's four different cards in the deck that I use that can untap Kiki Jiki. There's Corridor Monitor at two CMC. I had a single Deceiver Exarch that I added to the deck that was in here at three CMC. There's a couple of copies of Restoration Angel at four CMC. So it also runs Charming Prince as a two of, but that's really more of a utility card, something that you can search up if you want to save a creature for a cheap mana cost. It's not really part of the combo because Charming Prince's flash ability 
or blink ability, I guess we should call it really, removes the creature until the next end step. It doesn't bring it right back into play the way that Restoration Angel does, for example. So you don't you don't get that ability to use Charming Prince with Kiki Jiki to make an infinite combo. But it, it's helpful to have in there as something to save a uh, valuable target. The creature takes the scenic route home. Yeah, so exactly. It's been charmed by the prince, and so it's going to hang out for a little bit. Spend a day at the castle. Beautiful gardens. Is that Topiary? Toby, yeah. Um, another key card in this is Renegade Rallier, which is basically the way that the chain worked many times for me when I played this was you start with a mana dork, like a bird of paradise or a noble hierarch. At uh, the appropriate time when you when you kind of have a chance to, you sacrifice your mana dork to go get Corridor Monitor, and that untaps Prime Speaker Vanifar. Then you sacrifice the corridor monitor to prime speaker mana vanifar bring back renegade rallier renegade rallier brings back corridor monitor from the graveyard untaps uh your vanifar from there then you sacrifice the renegade rallier to go and get your um to go and get a restoration angel the restoration angel blinks the corridor monitor untaps the vanifar then you can sacrifice the <laughs> You kind of sacrifice out the chain until you get Kiki-Jiki in play from there, basically. So you're you're sacrificing the resto to get the Kiki, right? Right. You sacrifice the resto to get the Kiki, and then you y- use Kiki um, and cor- make a bunch yeah, of quarter yeah, yeah. monitors. Yeah, and kill <laughs> kill the person with infinite little <laughs> lanterns like the guy from Beauty and the Beast. Because the podcasts are in audio format, listeners cannot see this web of cards Dave has drawn on his wall and is pointing to and then reiterating and then removing a pin and putting it back yeah and so as you can see like explaining this chain it's actually i think once you practice it a few times you get it down but even though i've played vanifar decks before changing the composition of the deck a little bit totally like blew me up a bunch of different times because i was like no wait a minute so now wait so i can't i have restoration angel restoration angel if i blink prime speaker vanifar doesn't do anything so now what am i supposed to do and you kind of just like keep working up the chain the thing that's nice about it is that you have a bunch of targets where you can naturally draw into the combo, so you're not totally reliant on Vanifar to make it work. The other thing is you have, you know, if you look at the composition of the deck, it's basically combo pieces, ramp in the form of Birds of Paradise and Noble Hierarch, utility cards like a one of Goblin Crater Maker, Scavenging Ooze, Knight of Almond, Deputy of Detention, Fauna Shaman, Seasoned Pyromancer is like a card you can cord up to be able to to draw some cards if you need to. So there's all these kind of different things you can do there. Lastly, it runs four Giver of Runes, which is actually another one drop that you can use to start the chain. So you can give Vanifar protection and then sacrifice Giver of Runes to get the chain going go, uh, kind of up the whole way. So to go back to the whole reason why I started playing this deck which is Once Upon a Time, this seemed like a perfect deck for it since there's 53 hits in this deck for Once Upon a Time. There's 33 creatures and 20 lands. The only cards that aren't hits for Once Upon a Time are Once Upon a Time itself, a single Ren and Six, and Quarter Calling. So you're always choosing from the best card from your top five. That seems good. I mean, I, I, it seems good, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the whole thing is, I'm reading this, I'm like, this seems good. This seems like it's frustrating to play against. This seems like you can just win the spot. Unless yeah. your opponent has instant speed creature removal. <laughs> I scred. No. No, it's good here. It's good here. And no, nobody plays instant speed creature removal, do they? 
ever. No. Um, I, it's actually kind of not quite that simple, right? Because there are lots of things that you can court up at different moments in time. So going to court up a Restoration Angel to save one of your combo pieces actually works out pretty regular in this deck because you just flood the board with creatures. So you're able to ramp into these really big cords where courting a four drop is not that big of a deal or courting into Kiki-Jiki is not that big of a deal with this deck. Um, you know, it, it does really fun stuff. Like you get value off of people not being prepared for this deck. You get value off of different lines that you can take where you can become a beatdown deck a little bit and just win with a Restoration Angel here and there or, you know, kind of stuff like that. I feel like when it comes down to it, though, this game, this deck won game one like every match that I played. And then basically my opponent was ready for it in the next couple of games and it got super frustrated to play because you just get blown out once they're once they're waiting for the right moment to use their removal there's also not a lot of being able to audible in the middle of a game to a different plan unless you have a good amount of mana out on the board or a good amount of creatures to be able to use to cord with and so you're actually super super um weak to wraths and so anybody who has a wrath is just kind of like going to kill all your mana dorks and everything all at once and you're just kind of really sunk that you're kind of starting from ground zero that is how my deck was as well i i did definitely did not mention that but if they wrath hope you draw a goblin ringleader or it's over and i imagine a similar thing where hope you get a cord off the top yeah exactly and so you know i, I I couldn't chalk all of the struggles that I had with this up to my opponents. I made a huge, a ton of mistakes. You know, I fetched things at the wrong time. I got too aggressive with key cards. I did the chain out of order, misclicking. I timed out a couple of times because it took me too long to get my combo going because I was tanking while I was trying to figure out what I was supposed to be courting at. I think that, you know, that would get better with practice. But I, I feel like it's not that hard to interact with a deck that's full of creatures. And so in some ways this composition where it's kind of an all-in combo chord deck is maybe not really the right way to, to do it. And the, the creatures maybe cost too much in comparison to something like Devoted Druid combo, where you can search up a creature for, at a much lower uh, mana cost. Uh, real quick, why do you think the deck was unable to pivot into a mid-range or grindy plan? I think because what happens is you often end up with this board where you have... Um, if you're not going off on your combo, you sort of are like, ooh, I have two Birds of Paradise, a Giver of Runes, and a Goblin Crater Maker is what I have left after they killed my they killed my Vanifar. And you're like, well, not really sure what I'm doing here. I guess I'll give the Crater Maker protection from blue and attack. I don't I don't know. You know, so that's most of the reason why. I did, by the way, so this is interesting foreshadowing because as I close this Vanifar pod major chapter i would just say i'm kind of a belief minus on on this deck like i think that someone probably could be good with this i think that it's probably a really hard deck and to play but all and also easy to interact with so there's a lot of things working against it i still think it's nice that it kills out of nowhere when you bring up the kind of mid-range deck i i took a really quick look at a second deck that was a naya kiki stone blade once upon a time deck that actually i think um had a little more potential, but was very clunky at the same time. And so I felt like this was really just kind of like the games that I won, I won off of being a kind of bad Stoneforge Mystic deck and probably would just rather play Stoneforge instead. So when you ask, like, why couldn't you pivot into a more mid-rangey plan? This is a deck that was made to be a mid-rangey deck with a combo kill, this kind of Naya deck. And it really would have been better off, I think, being Bant or, or Control or something like that instead. I, I don't think the combo addition was really worth it. 
And like that deck even had four voice of resurgence in it as kill cards, the Naya version. And um, I don't even know what that card is good for anymore. Like I couldn't believe having a whole play set of voice of resurgence. I literally never made a token off of it. Never had anything happen with it. Like it was, it was pretty bad really, unfortunately. So I, I was kind of a believe minus on that deck as well. Sad. Whoa. Two double believe minus? Double believe minus, yeah. Don't worry, I'm here to save the day. Ooh, Santa Herald. So just to close like the thread on all of this stuff, Once Upon a Time itself was the whole reason I started even trying out these decks for this episode. And I think when it comes down to it, I'm a little bit lower on it than I was on our spoiler episode and a little bit lower on it overall, I think, because I think it's amazing off the draw. I'm starting to fall in line with the people who are saying it's amazing when you have it on the draw to fix your hand so that you don't have to mulligan. But later in the game with these decks, I really didn't have enough time to be able to play it just as a value card. And so I think that I had a pretty tough time kind of using it for anything other than uh, that opening hand. So I'm curious what you mean about fixing your opening hands to prevent mulligans and what sort of hands that's letting you keep and for instance when i play a card like opt or serum visions for that matter i often think to myself like what do i want to convert this card into is it a land is it a removal spell is it a threat what are you doing with once upon a time that you know you're trying to convert it into another card yeah total a total example of that is like a either one of these two hands like i you either draw a hand that is Bird of Paradise, Breeding Pool, Once Upon a Time, and four creatures, four other creatures. And I'm kind of like, okay, if I can get a second land, if I had a second hand in, land in this hand, I could definitely keep this and be able to play it and kind of go on my merry way because I'll have three mana eventually, you know, on turn two. Once Upon a Time lets you dig for that, and you're like 90% to get a land out of those top five cards. You know, Even in a deck that only has 20 lands, the probability that you draw your second land out of that is very high, and then hopefully you kind of have enough time to get your third land, and you're just kind of off to the races. So it made a hand like that a lot easier for me to keep, and I feel like I did that with confidence and was never really punished for it, so I feel like I would definitely do that all the time. So I don't think that Once Upon a Time lets you keep no land hands as you kind of posited on on the show the other day stan but i think it lets you keep one land hands a lot more aggressively especially in a deck that has mana dorks and things like that well on the flip side if you have a uh, a hand that has too many lands like you have three lands and not a whole lot of action you can use once upon a time to make sure you draw a creature instead and i think that that's super helpful as well to make sure that you kind of like nip any early flood in the bud as best you can so you're still keeping one landers, Dave. It's like you've learned nothing. <laughs> I know. I felt kind of weird doing it, but I still felt like it totally worked out every time. And so I feel like this is the one chance, the sort of one scenario where I feel pretty good about it. So that's it for me. I'm done with mirror breaking for a while. Um, please, friends, help me break the cycle. No more mirrors. Dave just has a, a house full of glass. Shattered. Shattered every glass. last bit. He shaves every morning using a reflection in a small pond that he's built into his rumpus room. <laughs> he wails his fist on it, but it won't break. Not this time. Not this one. Two card combos, Dave. I understand their siren song. I played a two card combo myself. 
I personally have graduated from Kiki Combo in my blue-red shells. <laughs> I'm on... Dave's Fuey League. <laughs> I'm on big, hasty 1515s now with Annihilator 6. Whoa. Ooh, that's varsity. Yas. So, I played blue-red Emrakul Breach. And this deck's combo is really, really easy. You get to five mana, you cast through the Breach while Emrakul is in your hand. You put a hasty Emrakul, the Aeon's Torn, into play... Swing for 15, and if the damage isn't enough to beat your opponent, hopefully, and usually, the Annihilator 6 will. And Annihilator 6 is a trigger that goes on the stack when Emrakul attacks, and the defending player has to sacrifice 6 permanents. So typically, opponents have to have a lot of life and a lot of permanence to survive a single Emrakul attack. And if you're doing a good job playing control in the build-up to that combo finish, this generally shouldn't be a problem. And ultimately, I, I saw this as a control deck that was just trying to win after it took over the game in turns five or later. And really, this deck has a very similar package to Blue Moon, which is a strategy I have a ton of experience with. Your only other creatures in this deck are Snapcaster Mage, and then you run a variety of counter spells, including Spell Snare, Remand, Cryptic Command, and Archmage's Charm. And the plan for your control package is really to buy as much time as possible while also having the option to draw cards as you dig for your finishers. The deck's primary removal spells is Lightning Bolt, but you occasionally see some main deck Abraid. Some players will play a single Is a Charm, which can tag a small creature. Also, Magmatic Sinkhole will sometimes see play. And traditionally, the deck would run up to three Jace, the Mind Sculptor in your main deck, which helps you dig it's an alternative win con and it's a tempo spell by bouncing a creature it could buy you a turn that way as well and in certain metas you will see this deck run main deck blood moons if not there's almost always at least one in the sideboard so to start i do want to talk really quickly of how it compares to other blue red decks um, thing in the ice tends to be the other most popular blue red blue moon strategy and i think the thing about blue red breach compared to thing in the ice are the deck building constraint that those eight slots create. So you almost always have to run four through the breach, four Emrakul, so you can build that combo somewhat consistently. And when you have all those cards devoted to the combo, you have a little less optionality with your removal spells, and I think that's why you start seeing cards like Archmage's Charm and Remand especially see more play. Alternatively, in the other popular Thing in the Ice version, those eight slots get to be devoted to things like Thing in the Ice, Vendillion Click, Blood Moons, more and different types of control cards. So when it comes down to which version to play, in my opinion, I think it really depends on the meta. And I think Thing in the Ice is really great in creature or aggressive metas, where an early blocker that turns into a board wipe will keep you alive longer. On the other hand, in combo or control-heavy metas, Through the Breach might be a better play because your life total isn't being pressured as much, so you can spend more time setting up an instant finisher. So you've had some experience playing this shell. Mm -hmm. You've had some experience playing, watching people kind of play Through the Breach here and there, and I know you were kind of tinkering around with it a little bit. What did you add from the new set? Yeah. Way to team me up, Dave. The There are three cards that I'm playing in this new version of the deck which are the Royal Scion, Brazen Borrower, and Mystic Sanctuary. And I want to start with Scion first. I think it's really the flagship new technology that 
potentially upgrades this deck. So for those not familiar, Royal Scion is a one blue-red, five loyalty, legendary planeswalker, Will Rowan, which I believe is two first names. Yeah, it is. Plus one, draw a card, then discard a card. Another plus one, target creature gets plus two, plus zero, and gains first strike and trample until end of turn. And finally, minus eight, draw four cards. When you do, the Royal Scions deals damage to any target equal to the number of cards in your hand. So out the gate, I thought Scions added a lot to the combo half of this deck. And by the end of my testing and, and really gearing up to this recording in the last couple of days, I was up to a full playset of Scions and loving it. And that was me tweaking, right? I think the most recent 5-0 dump last Friday had one through the breach deck with just a single Royal Scion um, and still running two Jace. I thought Scions did enough work and did their job well enough that playing four wasn't super punishing. That's awesome. There is a cost to playing Scions over Jace uh, because they don't interact with the board. And I think that's a really big deal. And they don't really offer an alternative win condition. They're kind of like an all-in plan that you get to play a turn earlier. But they do really shine when you are digging for your combo pieces, which I think is something this deck has to do to stay competitive, is try to combo out as consistently as possible. So you found that they were better at digging than Brainstorm was at digging? Yes. And I, I will get to that point specifically in just a second. Um, one of their downsides, though, was making use of that second plus because that requires its own deck building restriction, I wanted to try to make it as useful as possible, but this may be the case of like Sahili Rai, where it just has an ability that you ignore in 99% of the games you play. So digging. Their looting effect gives you a ton of optionality while you dig toward your combo and basically makes it impossible to flood out, which I thought was really handy. And while I wouldn't say that they're actually better than Jace pound for pound... Jace doesn't protect himself when you're brainstorming, while the Scions, once you start taking them up, become really hard to kill. They dodge Bolt, mm -hmm. they dodge Magnetic Sinkhole. Um, unless you have just pointed Planeswalker removal or a bunch of creatures to swing into them, once you get them to six loyalty, I think they become a really sticky problem for the opponent. And also, in effect... I was generally drawing more cards with Scion than I generally can with Jace because of how easy Jace is to kill once you start drawing cards. And while all of Jace's abilities are good, Scion's needs a little bit more setup. So it's kind of a tug of war between these two Planeswalkers. Regarding their other abilities, I was very impressed by their ultimate. So when the Walker was left unanswered, their ultimate really ended games almost always on the same turn. I was able to ult them in about half the games I cast them, and either the ultimate would find the combo piece I needed to finish, and if not, the damage it would do off that ability from having all these cards in my hand, coupled with maybe a couple bolts, some snapcasters to recast their bolts, or even like another beater on the field, usually meant that the game was over, if not that turn, very shortly thereafter. For this card in particular, I actually don't expect four Scions to be the standard moving forward, and I really took a brute force approach to testing this new technology because I wanted to draw them more often to help me assess what their power level would be. But I think players are going to find success with multiples in their deck, and I would personally lean on playing more than one, which is what we saw last week. As far as cards go, 
this is a total sleeve in my opinion. It does its job so well that it ends up having a pretty low fail state. I think we'll probably even see more blue red decks experiment with them in shells that make their second ability more relevant too. Um, and that's something I did test with the next card, which is Brazen Borrower. And that was really me wanting to prove a point either to myself or to you guys or the listeners, because it was something that I was looking at from our first Eldraine spoiler episode. So Brazen Bowers is a one blue blue fairy rogue flash flying three one. It can only block creatures with flying, but it also has an adventure mode, petty theft, one in a blue instant, return target non-land permanent, and opponent controls to their hand. One of my tweaks was just jamming four Brazen Bower in this deck, again, to draw them as often as possible, really assess their power level. So your deck was just four through the breaches, four brazen borrowers, four royal science, four emeralds, and, and four twenty-four <laughs> lightning bolts. <laughs> yeah, more or less. Actually, by the end, I was down to three breach and three emerald because I needed to make some space for my control package, <laughs> and the scions made it so much easier to just find those combo pieces that I thought I could shave sure. down on the combo pieces a little bit. I don't know if that's the right approach. That's just where my testing led me. But my deck was super streamlined. It was a lot of three and four ofs, and it was more like a tempo deck with a combo finish as opposed to a control deck with a combo finish because I was still counting on a braid to buy me a turn and draw me a card. I was counting on brazen borrowers to bounce back problematic creatures or other permanents. And in the end, I found that brazen borrowers were good, but not great in this deck. So while they paired very nicely with Scions because... The second plus ability made borrowers attack for five. One toughness is so so easy to kill. And not to mention if the petty theft got countered or, or answered, that was just a creature in the graveyard I was not getting any value out of later. Crime doesn't pay, Dan. It really doesn't. I also got to say that attacking for five, even though I got to do it a couple times... I was never able to actually finish a game by just beating down unless I was also able to ultimate a Royal Scion to kind of do some more damage there. Yeah, it definitely feels like a card that you're going to get a hit or two in with with the Scions, but then they'll stabilize at, you know, four or five and then remove the creature and then you're going, "Uh uh-oh. Yeah, so they were on plan with the draw-go nature of the deck because both sides operate at instant speed. But they weren't a replacement for Remand, which is what I initially thought. And I ended up coming around to them being the extra copies of Remand. Because Petty Theft always draws you a creature. And Remand doesn't always draw you a creature. Perhaps it rarely even wants to draw you a creature. I think Remand is the type of card where I want to buy a turn while I find the answer to the spell I'm countering. My basic assessment of Borrowers is that they're undeniably strong, but their ideal home is still out there. And I know some Merfolk players have been testing them, some other blue-red Delver decks have been testing them, and maybe those will prove to be a more consistent place to put this card because the power level is there. I just don't think Through the Breach is trying to buy time this way. It's looking for more permanent answers, um, and Remand is really like the best slot for a tempo spell in that regard. One other place where I think I would actually test them is a potential replacement for Thing in the Ice in that version of Blue Moon to be a little bit more aggressive if I'm not trying to attack a creature-heavy meta and looking for a big sweeper. So if I'm a sleeve on Scions, 
I'm really a believe, believe plus on borrowers. I think they work nicely with scions, but I'm reluctant to say that they belong in the Through the Breach deck. And the last card I want to talk about is Mystic Sanctuary. Mystic Sanctuary is one of the new common lands from Eldraine. And it's a non-basic island, meaning it can be fetched. And it reads, Mystic Sanctuary enters the battlefield tapped unless you control three or more other islands. And when it enters the battlefield untapped, you may put target instant or sorcery card from your graveyard on top of your library. Let me tell you guys, this card is awesome, and I'm very confident it's here to stay. Oh, yeah. Kind of terrified by that, but I also think that's true from what I've watched over the last week. Yeah, I mean, you can interact with it. I mean, you can nibble a Stortionist cycle, mm -hmm. get it, but in general, it being a land that just happens is very powerful and very scary to me. Yeah, it's definitely a sleeve to me at one, and I think some decks are going to be happy to run two or more. <clears throat> maybe Blond Mono Blue can run three or four, maybe. <gasps> the only time this card felt bad was when it was in my opening hand. Eventually, I went from running two in my Breach deck to one just to reduce the number of times it was in my opener, but I think some decks can fit more depending on how many fetches they run. So I found a single copy served as a valuable target to fetch when I top deck a land later on in the game. With Scions around, that was something that would happen a lot. Um, and it was also fantastic in a strategy full of other draw spells. So with Scions, Remand, Opt, and Cryptic Command, I was drawing the Sanctuary target during my turn about as often as I was setting up the next turn's draw by fetching during my opponent's end step. So something that friend of the show, Jack the Judge, pointed out to me was that Sanctuary and a Cryptic Command can actually even set up a soft lock. If you use Cryptic Command to counter and then bounce uh, your land back to your hand, and then you replay the Sanctuary, get your Cryptic Command back, and depending on what else is in your hand, you can basically rinse and repeat that, keep your opponents from playing magic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Resolving any spell, basically. There's a way that you can do it with two cryptic commands where you just get to recycle whichever one is in the graveyard over and over again from it um yeah it's i had a this bunch, of, bunch of wild stuff yeah I've, I've already noticed this card appear in several modern decks it was an urza outcome grixis control kiki combo and don't talk to me about mill. kiki combo don't talk to me or my goblin ever again <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely here to stay. It's so versatile. There's so many blue decks that can use just the one, if not more. Um, decks that want to go long, like blue-white, will probably start testing them, even though I don't think I've noticed a single blue-white deck running these yet. Maybe there was one in the modern challenge I have to double-check, but in general, I've been seeing blue-white decks playing some of those new rare lands more often than not, but... Hmm. This is just one more card that can replace a basic island if your deck is already running five or six basic islands. So I definitely lost last week to a deck that was just built to bounce this over again with a card from 8th edition, I think, called Trade Routes. <laughs> that just lets you pay, pay a colorless mana. It's an enchantment. You just pay a colorless mana to pick up a land. And so they were just picking up their land and replaying it over and over again to recycle Time Warp over and over again and just killing me i lost to that deck too yeah. man i mean it's a pelvic yeah. thrust it just drives me insane every time yeah i feel so strongly about this card that i think blue decks need a good reason not to play it because this ability tacked into just a land slot 
basically defines the outcome of enough games. And that's such a high ceiling for an island that if you're casting non-creature spells, instants and sorcery specifically, why wouldn't you run at least one? Yeah. I feel like, you know, Shane was pretty down on this on the spoiler episode. And I just feel like your dad. I know. I'm just saying, I feel like there's so many cards playing or so many decks playing it right now that it's pretty hard to deny it's going to be around. Oh, yeah. It's, it's like instant staple, instant staple. Yeah. So through the breach moving forward, probably not running Brazen Bowers, maybe a one of. I think it's definitely going to keep running Royal Scions, hopefully more than one. But as a Jace, you can cast a little faster. It did a lot of work there. Mystic Sanctuary, absolutely here to stay until it at least gets outclassed by another land. So through the breaches of real deck, it's as real as it's ever been. In a combo meta like right now, it's probably a great way to finish control games. It was a sleeve before. I'm not going to change that. Sleeve it up. So we're going to add a little bonus sleeve believe heave on here really quickly with some cards that we feel like we should talk about that we didn't talk about during the spoiler episode, but that are starting to pop in modern as we've played the first couple of weeks after Eldraine has come out. So Stan's going to take us for the, through the first couple. All right, we're going to start with Drown in the Lock and Into the Story because these are two cards that appeared in a Grixis control list pioneered by a streamer named Aspiring Spike. And Dave and I got to play with both of these a little bit. And interestingly enough, Dave and I had pretty reversed reactions to them. Yeah, I mean, I think, first off, I want to say that if you have not seen this Aspiring Spike list or haven't seen any of these Grixis control lists floating around like now, you need to see them. Yeah, on top of that, I think Aspiring Spike has proven himself to be a really talented player and brewer. And if you like watching streamers on Twitch, especially ones who play a lot of modern aspiring spike weekdays in the morning <laughs> like if you have time to kill before class or at work there's a there are worse ways to spend time on twitch i'm pretty sure aspiring spike got five five o's last week with a number <laughs> Not of a different deal. decks holy crap oh my it God. was pretty wild yeah, <laughs> yeah and i think it was four different decks two of which were with this grixis control list this is definitely a person to keep an eye on yeah at the time of recording he's number two on the modern league leaderboard oh get it how you live it all right yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I guess my my just impression here was I was super excited that there was a deck that had Into the Story with it because there's nothing I love more than drawing cards. If you forgot what Into the Story is, it is a five generic blue-blue instant that says draw four cards on it and has a cost reduction mechanic that says this costs three less, three generic less to cast if your opponent has seven or more cards in their graveyard. So basically... The Grixis control list plays Thought Scour, and instead of doing what you normally do, which is target yourself with Thought Scour, you target your opponent as much as possible in order to turn on, um, in order to turn on into the story, and also turn on Drown in the Lock. I felt like uh, I'm just super excited to be able to cast into the story. I had one game when I tested this where I went into the story, Snapcaster into the story, then cast Torrential Gearhulk targeting into the story. So I drew twelve cards off of several different copies of Into the Story, one of which had gotten milled into my graveyard. So it was kind of just this insane... I mean, drawing four cards for four mana is something that is just super powerful. That's kind of all there is to it. Um, I felt Drown like Drown was pretty good. I didn't get a lot of options, opportunities to use it, but I think that was probably matchup-based more than anything else. Yeah, my experience was a little reversed, wherein I was super impressed by Drown in the Lock, 
but almost disappointed by Into the Story. Um, as Dave mentioned, these cards change the way you play Thoughtscour, but I was more likely to use Thoughtscour on my opponent if I had Drown in the Lock in my hand. I was still casting Thoughtscour on myself enough just so I could have some optionality to use with Snapcaster Mages. Yeah, I think you probably shouldn't do that if you're playing this deck. Just ever? <laughs> I think it's I think it's like where it used to be like a 90-10 split. I think now it's like a 90-10 split the other way. We're like, if I only have Snapcasters and no payoffs, then I'm going to Thought Scour myself, and otherwise it's just hit the opponent with it. I, I think this deck is real, though, and both of those cards are also real to me. It's a question of how many 7 CMC instants you can fit in your deck, but... It is what it is. Yeah, the other card that um, is appearing in some sideboards is Mystical Dispute as a counterspell. I is it two in a blue, three in a blue? Two. It's two in a blue off the uh, without the cost reduction. Right, but it costs two generic less if it targets a blue spell. Right, um, and then it's counter target spell unless controller pays three. Right. So it's like a spell pier. No, it's like a mana, it's a mana leak. leak. Yeah, it's mana yeah. leak for a single blue. And in my opinion, you're only ever playing this against blue decks. That's pretty much why it's just in the sideboard. But I found it to be a great answer to Urza, specifically the creature, and a nice turn one answer to Emery, which is something that I was worried that we were laugh- lacking in the format. So I think this card will come in and out of blue sideboards for pretty much the upcoming future either until it gets outclassed or blue's footprint just shrinks in the metagame but the card is really powerful right now totally agree of course Zach. we gotta give a shout out to oko oko watch 2019 fun fact oko actually an anagram of zach moving on we didn't bother to talk too much about oko in the last episode but i think it's sort of a foregone conclusion that it's a good card and going to be played in modern and oh goodness if it's not being played in modern this card's showing up everywhere. I'm losing to it on stream. I'm getting personally embarrassed. The fan member's calling me, asking me, am I okay? Am I sick? Do I need help? The answer is yes. Oko's very good. Yep. It gains life. It changes things, and that's kind of it. And it's in like every different kind of deck. I've seen it in Emery. I've seen it in a mid-range deck. I've seen it in like an aggro deck. Like it's it's all over the place. In Bant, uh, Bant Collected Company, there's Oko's. Like it, Oko, Oko's everywhere. It's even in Wurza, apparently. Yeah. Last card I just want to talk about by name is Ginger Brute. Weirdly, this fun card that I think everybody thought was kind of a meme. Looks like it has a, a home next to Cranial Planning in Affinity. I just thought that was kind of sweet, so we just threw it on here at the end of the list. But it's basically a one CMC haste with unblockable. So put your Cranial Plating on that and get to town. So there you have it, folks. Throne of Eldrain. Perhaps not as widely impactful as Modern Horizons, but could this be the next War of the Spark in terms of modern impact from a standard set? Might be up there. Time will tell. We're going to take a quick break before the wind down, and when we return, we're going to get really heavy with some soul searching. (laughs) Stay with us. So, listener sent me a question this week. I, I know I don't usually read these. Do you mind if I read it to you? I love the role reversal, please. Okay. So, it comes from someone named uh, BDH in, in Chicago. How is BD spelled? Is it B E D E? 
No, it's just the letters B D H. Oh, okay. And they live in Chicago too, so maybe we know them, Stan and Zach. Yeah, a real small city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, that also says they're writing from a boat. I don't know why that's a relevant detail. They said they're writing from the BD five. Oh, uh, I know that vessel. Very seaworthy. Yeah. Um, so here's a question from a real listener that is definitely not me. How do you break out of a slump? Uh, I've been playing all these Kiki-Jiki decks and just losing tons, but really I've just been losing tons lately. I feel like I'm tilting a little more easily and making more mistakes too. How do you two get your game back on track when you feel like you've lost your way a little bit? This is not me. This is not me, by the way. This is me channeling someone else's. Right, right. But w- w- when are you going to read the question that they sent in? Right. <laughs> right. Be gentle here. Yeah, I can kind of relate I've been like on a teeny tiny slump ever since Faithless Looting got banned because even though I have other cards and decks to play, I loved playing Phoenix. And it felt like both the deck I enjoyed playing was decent at and was very viable competitively. And losing something that checked off all those three boxes has forced me to do like a lot of soul searching. And I think I've like talked about that with some people on the Slack. I may have even mentioned this on the show before. And, I mean, the boring answer is you just got to play through that slump, right? Like, if you're a little sore, you're not going to stop exercising. You just kind of have to push through it. But one of the nice things about magic and one of the ways that I've consistently been able to get out of slumps before is that there's so many ways to interact with the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the truth. And, like, there have been times where my performance in modern hasn't been to my own expectations but every once in a while i'll still go to a draft i'll play sealed or a pre-release and i find that if i can do well in a draft or like just play really conservatively make good decisions and you know perform well because of that even if it's in a non-modern format that is really good at rejuvenating me and and kind of helping me get out of a slump and stay motivated to keep working and practicing and try to be a better modern player. No, definitely. I totally agree with that. I recently went through something very similar where even this past weekend where I've been playing a lot of magic, both for this podcast and because it is my number one hobby. And I got to a point where I was so very done looking at deck lists. So very done reading articles. So very done, like constantly exposing myself to this high level thought where I needed, I felt like a step back. So I've been playing, like I mentioned, Throne of Eldraine on Arena and really enjoying it. And even though it's the quote-unquote to the same game, it's different enough and, you know, it's flashy, it's fun to play, It's has a great UI to a degree where I feel like it's totally separate from MTGO and feel like it can be a little fun reset for my brain without feeling like I'm not, you know, honing my skills or not, you know, applying what I've learned, etc. So for me, when I feel like, a little off kilter with modern or feel like I'm getting a little burnt out or not loving what's going on. I totally agree. It can be fun to play other magic formats or in general, expanding upon what Stan's saying, where if you need to take a break, it's important to listen to yourself and know when it's time to maybe skip an LGS for a week and spend a night in, or, Hey, I don't need to finish this league tonight. I can do it tomorrow. So I feel like there are times when it's like, no, push yourself. Like you do need to go out tonight and like, you do need to do this, but there are other times where it's important to, Pay attention to yourself and listen to your body and know when, you know, maybe 10 hours of magic a day is too much. I don't know. No one's ever told me that directly. <laughs> I mean, the, my empl- my the people I work with constantly tell me that at work. They come into my office <laughs> and they go, 
10 hours is too much. <laughs> Dave, close MTGO. <laughs> so Dave, I once had a slump, or, or BDH, whoever that may be. I, I once had a slump that lasted about a month. And it was, I was pretty new to modern. At that point, all I had was Gifts Storm. And I went to SCG Regionals, and I played nine rounds, and I went two and seven Oof. with Storm. And it was so mentally taxing, and I was like so frustrated with how poorly I had done oh, sure. that I just didn't want to play modern for weeks to the point that my now fiance was like, you haven't played magic in a while. Is everything okay? And one of the things that I did at the time was I just started playing a bunch of commander with my casual friends. And then eventually I started seeing new decks that were using like some of the same cards. And that's how I first got into blue moon Kiki Jiki because I was able to use my scalding tarns, my lands, my lightning bolts and my cantrips. And what I'm really getting to is, like, one of the ways that I find is also helpful to get out of a slump is just to spend more money (laughs) and retail therapy your way out of there. (laughs) And, like, if you see something really exciting and, like, you've got some store credit or some trades or some extra cash, like, find a new strategy that you can start honing and being a master at. And that's where I find mana traders really helpful. No joke. When I wouldn't be able to play goblins before, like I would have to ask my friends about individual cards or try to have someone else help me run the deck or whatever. And it's in general, it's just, it's really helpful and allows you to tool around. And, you know, even if you don't like a deck, you know that cause you played it and now know mm-hmm. that like, all right, I was in a slump and I played something else and I really missed the familiar home of Mono Red prison. Now I'm ready to return to it. Totally. I love it. I'm going to say really quickly, the one thing I'm, I'm personally would add to this list for BDH, whoever that you may are, be, whoever you are, <laughs> no I, I think I love, I, I love the advice of like, take a break, think about it. It's okay to take a break. Number or, or another one is kind of like stop focusing so much on results for a little bit, start focusing a little bit on how much you're enjoying it, change it up, change your deck, change the way that you're playing magic. If you're going to keep playing magic, that's okay too. The one thing I would add to the list is um, I'm going to try personally to just kind of slow my pace of play a little bit and focus a little bit on fundamental decisions a little bit better and try to just reestablish my uh, ability to feel like I'm in the play, right? Like I feel like what happens sometimes when you get on a bad slump is you start start feeling like you're not really connected to the actual gameplay. And so what I want to try to do is focus a little bit more on kind of micro decisions and try to build some momentum feeling and control of that stuff again. Um, That seems like a good place to work if you're going to work fundamentally as well. Yeah, absolutely. And Dave, I totally agree with that as well. And I feel like sometimes magic can feel a little bit like you're reading off like a recipe list and following these instructions and doing it exactly and being a little like almost removed from the process of playing the game of magic and like not watching yourself play magic but watching the deck play itself and being being frustrated when it doesn't win because that's not how modern really works and it can feel nice like you said to be reinvested and feel like like literally a more tactical hands-on approach of no i am the pilot i am directing this i'm not the whims and behest of this expensive cardboard game look at me i'm the captain now that's i say to my deck all the time and i mean it and i mean it dave what better way to refamiliarize yourself with the fundamentals than a draft Mm. You know, I used to be a huge only limited player. I know. I, didn't know I, ha- you. I haven't I haven't drafted since uh Guilds of Ravnica. Buddy, Eldraine is awesome. Ooh, right. a little bit of endorsement. Play Blueback Mill. All right. Well, 
Next week, I'll be on limited resources instead. Because <laughs> Marshall owes me. And uh, I'll leave you guys to what you're doing over here on the Modern Podcast. There's no Shane's. There just means Stan next week <laughs> talking over each Dave, other for an all hour. Dave's on limited resources for, for LSV this week. Just begrudgingly talking about Urza at one another. Yeah, Stan, I don't love it. Do you? No, quite frankly, I don't either. All right. Well, let's talk about Blood Moon for two hours. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> have to lose that up somewhere. All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or feel free to email us, thedivedown at gmail.com. I will sometimes respond with very long-winded emails at 11 p.m., because everyone in my house is asleep and I just can't stop thinking about the listeners. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. Joining at any tier gets you access to our super secret Slack channel where we interact with our patrons every day at work while we're looking busy at the office. Also, shout out to Manatraders.com for sponsoring the Dive Down. You can sign up for Manatraders using promo code THEDIVEDOWN all one word, and get 10% off your first three months of renting paper or Magic Online cards. It's a great way to get better at Magic, test a lot of strategies, and do some brewing of your own. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and assemble a combo! So this week I was playing uh, Jund Combo Goblins, or as I'm calling it right now, Jund Goblins, 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 Goblins. Okay, so Goblins. that sounds like something you put on top of a hot dog. No, they're actually a little pretzels full of cheese. Uh, but I thought that was that the too. bag of organs that comes inside of a turkey. Oh no, that's goblins. <laughs> Do you guys ever put a goblin in a turducken and then just kind of like deep fry it for Christmas? It's so good. I can't handle the screams. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got to clean them real good because their blood is dirt. Yeah, a turdoblin. <laughs>